Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the new Jordan Peele UFO thriller Nope, starring Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya as a pair of horse ranchers. Combining sci-fi and horror, it's a smart blockbuster with lots to say about cinema and the entertainment industry. Um, This movie's getting great reviews. This is uh, his third film after Get Out and Us. We've done episodes on both of those. Absolutely love Get Out. Much more mixed feelings on Us, which I think is kind of a general response from the public. But yeah, this was a really interesting movie with loads to chew on and just works extremely well as a blockbuster that kind of combines all the things that happen in classic blockbusters, as in an amazing cast that actually have personalities and charisma and a sense of being in a really big, expansive world with exciting stuff happening and sheer artistry while also kind of working on the level of being entertaining and fun and exciting. So uh, well done to Jordan Peele, one of the few guys out there doing it right. And uh, yeah, let's get into it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited to finally get to talk about this movie. I saw this at a press screening and so I saw it, I think over a month ago as we record this and was immediately just like Gav needs to see this movie so we can <laughs> talk about it and the reason that we uh, are doing it a bit late is that it came out later in the United Kingdom but that has just you know given us some time to well me some time to have my thoughts percolate there's been some writing about the film and Gav has now obviously finally gotten a chance to see it but um, I saw it in IMAX and I just was completely swept away by it and I get to see some stuff in advance obviously we both do because that's our job but I don't often get to see a movie that's like this big on like a blockbuster scale before anyone else has seen it like I was at I think the second public screening in New York and so I didn't really have any sense of the response yet because there wasn't any critical consensus at that point and having the sort of truly pure experience of just being like, this movie is incredible, was really special and exciting for me. And I think there are lots and lots of people who also thought it was amazing. But I was really interested in seeing that there also were a lot of critics and just viewers in general who were a bit more mixed on it. And I think that that actually speaks well to the movie because I think it's a lot more thematically ambitious and kind of complex than something like Get Out, which we, we talked about on the podcast. I think that movie is incredible, obviously. But that movie is doing a very like one-to-one allegory thing about racism. And the allegory that he constructs in that movie is really intelligent and terrifying and funny and thought-provoking. But it is sort of a contained, tight thing. Whereas this movie is less straightforward and I think that's where some people probably get tripped up by it but for me I found it exciting and getting to see someone who obviously is really brilliant just in terms of like how he thinks about the world and also brilliant as an artist get to have all the like money and canvas to do a big movie like this that actually is like for grown-ups and has ideas was really exciting because as you say those movies basically don't exist anymore so yeah I mean, he talked a lot, obviously, in the interviews about the big influences. So Close Encounters of the Third Kind is a huge one. King Kong, Jurassic Park, Signs, and amusingly, part of the inspiration for the UFO entity is the angels from Neon Genesis Evangelion. 
Uh, and I was like, yeah, you know what? He's not wrong. Of course. <laughs> um, and just sort of the, the legacy of the UFO in American pop culture and also the legacy of Westerns. Because like a lot of this is sort of playing around with the Western genre and also playing around with the role of Black people in Western movies and also in the West. Because kind of the premise of the two main characters is they're uh, both adults, like obviously the actors in their 30s. And they are the children of this guy who is a ranch owner. And the family ranch raises trained horses to act in movies. And the movie begins with this father dying in a freak accident where just like a bunch of stuff falls from the sky and kills him, which is the first eerie happenstance of the movie. And that means that the son, whose name is OJ, played by Daniel Kaluuya, now has to run this business by himself. And there's this really obvious personality clash between he and his sister. And the two central performances of the movie are like so fucking good. <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya is incredible. He is playing this guy who's clearly grieving. He's not really a big personality. He's quite a downbeat person, even at the best of times. And he's not a big talker, which is a problem because he's in the entertainment industry. So you immediately get this contrast between him and his sister because Kiki Palmer is like extremely high energy and I think quite an improvisational performer as well. And she's kind of self-promoting and she's not actually involved that much in the organization of the business, but she's much better at promoting it. So you've got them sort of clashing over how to present this business with Daniel Kaluuya's character kind of doing the money stuff and they're in trouble. And after this quite downbeat first section, that's when the UFO shows up. Yes, and... He does a lot of similar things to other movies that sort of f fall into this broad category or films that he is alluding to in the sense that you don't see this UFO for a long time or like you can maybe see a bit of a shape of it, but it's hidden and sort of one of the f most famous sort of rules of horror and sci-fi filmmaking, which we've talked about on the podcast before, is that you're not supposed to see the monsters or the aliens, which he does eventually show you in this movie, but he's smart about waiting for a long time to do that. So that there is this sense of mystery and fear. And while that's building up, he's using that time to establish the characters in a way that is just feels very natural. Like, I was thinking a lot watching this movie about how the characters just felt like actual people. And obviously, they fit into sort of broad archetypes as well, because this is blockbuster filmmaking. And so they have to sort of go along with these sort of plot clashes that are kind of... Um, I don't know, I can't think of a word other than archetypal, right? Like, the, the sister with the big personality and the brother with the recessive personality. And, like, there's this also this big violence and danger that they have to deal with that is kind of, like, bigger than real life. But the actors are so great and the writing is so nuanced and specific, both in terms of the emotions, but also just, like, the small details of how the characters interact with each other and with other people that it draws you into the movie so much that both just in terms of like believing all of this stuff is happening and also in terms of your emotional investment in the film, he just lays the groundwork so well. And then the second half of the movie gets increasingly sort of nuts with the violence and sci-fi stuff. Yeah, I mean, it feels 
very telling kind of compared to the current blockbuster trends where there's so many movies that are in conversation with these blockbusters in the 70s and 80s because that's what everyone grew up with right and there's so many that are basically trying to copy them the jurassic world movies are a really obvious example and the ghostbusters movies and stuff like that and the big complaint around those from critics is that they are just completely cheap nostalgia and they're not doing anything at an artistic level and the characters they are archetypes, but like not in a good way. You know, they're extremely thinly characterized and stereotyped. And in this, he's using these archetypes in a really smart way. Like obviously a ton of this film is deconstructing stuff to do with the entertainment industry in Hollywood. But also if you have one of these stories rooted in a location and characters that feel genuinely real, you can tell the simplest story in the world and it will be really effective and this movie looks gorgeous. The cinematography is great. We will be talking about the technical stuff at great length later in the podcast. And because you've got the whole thing anchored around these two actors who are fantastic, it just works so well. And one of the things that I really appreciated it as someone who's watched like quite a lot of stuff by Jordan Peele is he's kind of known for being able to you know, combine comedy and much more serious, like intense material. Obviously, he started out in sketch comedy, And now he's also done the Twilight Zone TV series, which he kind of produced. I can't remember how much of it he directed, but he's the presenter guy. I've seen a bunch of it. It's very good. But um, he, in this, rather than doing what you see in most of the current blockbusters of the sort of Jurassic World Marvel type, which is having loads of quips and having comedic moments that are very cliched and feel sort of pasted on, in this, most of the humour isn't really jokes. It's either stuff that's kind of ironic callbacks to stuff that happened earlier in the film that's to do with your brain clicking onto a theme that's being re-examined in a different way later on, or it's due to the performances because you've got such talented actors in the lead roles that it makes stuff funny in the way that stuff in real life is funny, including just the way that Daniel Kaluuya says the word nope when he's presented with something which is just like absurdly terrifying. And he's just like, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm not doing it at all. And something that I found interesting about kind of the casting process for this is that um, obviously there's several characters in the supporting cast. And probably the one who has the most screen time is this guy named Angel Torres, who is a tech guy from a big box store who goes to install cameras in their ranch so they can try and film the UFO. And he's played by the actor Brandon Perea, who is in the TV show The OA. He's amazing. But basically, he is the comedy character. He actually apparently completely changed the character in his audition when he got the role, because he auditioned it in a far more downbeat and serious way than Jordan Peele was expecting for the character. And then Peele went to the studio and was like, I want to retool this character to fit Brandon Perea's audition performance. And I'm like, this is intriguing. I'm excited to see more from Brandon. What is it that is fascinating Jordan Peele to this extent? Because like, I like him, but you know, clearly he's got something going on. <laughs> so the original character was supposed to be funnier than what we yeah, see? Yeah, the original character was, I think, much zanier and like more of a funny stoner guy. And also like different stuff was going to happen to him. And they rewrote the role because they liked Brandon Perea's performance. Because I have trouble imagining a version of this movie with a more zany character in that role. I wanted to mention that in terms of the characterization and the sort of slowness at the beginning, well, first of all, 
you mentioned several movies that influenced this one, some of which I've seen and some of which I haven't. But the one that I was thinking about a lot watching it was Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is a movie that I actually don't like very much. I've only seen it once. I watched it a few years ago. And obviously, there's like technical stuff that's impressive. And it was really influential. This was like, one of the early big Spielberg movies after he made Jaws. But I actually found that movie like, very slow and boring and quite sexist. And so I was kind of like, I just don't care about this. But it was really interesting to me to watch this and think about how someone who does really appreciate the movie, as Peel clearly does, was like taking things from it and then sort of shifting them around in his brain and drawing out the positives in the sense that the focus on character, which like that movie isn't about aliens arriving on Earth, but it's just all character stuff. Like there's really no action in the movie. And that's a big focus of this film, even though there are action set pieces. And a lot of the cinematography is sort of a callback to Close Encounters. And like the landscape is very similar, the sort of Western California landscape. And there's other cinematic references we'll be talking about later on. But I just really admire and appreciate his interest in film history and kind of wanting to metabolize those things and do something new with them. And I think he clearly is someone who's particularly interested in the sort of like 70s, 80s, sci-fi, horror stuff, as opposed to the 40s movies that I love. But he's thinking about them in an actually critical, interesting way, as opposed to the like, 80s reboots or 80s influence stuff that we complain about from recently, which is yeah boring. Well, I think kind of one of the key things that's interesting about this is that there's no guns, right? There's no attempt to have that militaristic tone that you get in a lot of movies, especially from the past like 30 years or so. Like the blockbusters have to be very combat based, right? And then there's the other side, which is like, this film is very intellectual, like a rival. So it's much more like about philosophical sci-fi stuff. And the reason why this feels rooted in that sort of 70s era is because it has this real sense of wonder and fear because it genuinely is like, oh, this UFO is like this really fucked up, genuinely alien thing. And because we're normal people, we don't have a bunch of machine guns and we're going to have to resolve this problem in a more ingenious way. Which is a bit ironic because it's America, so they definitely could get their hands on some machine yes. guns, ASAP, if they so desire. But which their goal just, is to take photos. <laughs> yes, as opposed to killing the thing, which creates conflict that is interesting and different. But aside from the themes of the movie, which we will obviously talk about, just in terms of like the structure of the narrative, it is so much more interesting to watch a movie that is about people trying to take pictures and video of this UFO as opposed to trying to destroy it, right? Because we've seen a million movies about people trying to destroy a thing. And again, obviously, if it's sci-fi, like, you can make up just rules being like, bullets don't hurt, whatever. Like, you know, whatever. But it's just kind of less interesting, I think. And then it also, there's thematic stuff that's interesting, but it just, like, forces the characters to have different motivations and for the viewers to think about different things on that level as well. Yeah. I mean, for people who've not seen the movie, essentially what happens is once the main character, OJ, has figured out there is this UFO flying around this, they live in this big open valley and there's this UFO that's been taking their horses. And after he finally spots it, he's like, what the fuck? 
we need to get footage of this because this could really make us like we could sell this for millions of dollars we could be famous this could really properly be our inn and save the ranch and everything so he and his sister go to Brandon Perea's character Angel and get him to set up a bunch of cameras around their ranch and then the midsection of this film is just them trying to find different ways to capture this thing on film while also we the audience start seeing the UFO more and more and it becomes more of an obvious threat and we get to see what happens when the UFO gets people and for me, like, I actually think I like this film slightly less than you, to my surprise. I think this film is far more interesting and probably Jordan Peele's best film, but I enjoyed Get Out more because I just love a straightforward horror movie and I just think it's a perfect horror film. But with this in the first half, because it's quite of a slow burn and because the main character is so depressed for a lot of it, I was like, okay, I kind of waiting for some more to happen here, which I realise is not the most intellectual of thought processes. <laughs> I had a lot more to think about after the film was over. But then in the second half, it really does heat up and gets like extremely exciting. And I feel like that pacing does actually really work well. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably reflects like the type of movies that we watch, which is that you watch lots of horror films where I assume there's a lot going on in the first half. Whereas I don't watch that many mainstream blockbusters or indeed horror film. I mean, I like horror movies a lot, but I just don't watch nearly as many of them as you do, especially now that you're on Letterboxd. I'm like, wow, Gav is watching so many <laughs> weird horror movies I've never heard of. And to me, I was like, oh, just love a mainstream film the whole time. I was like, this is just... <laughs> it's like oh, this movie is like treat. so much so much smarter and so much more intellectually paced and so much better to look at than all the mainstream movies I have to watch. Yes. The one other thing I wanted to say about the characterization, which we've already talked about being great. It's just like, I think Get Out is amazing, of course. And I think Us doesn't really work, but is like entertaining enough. And I think the adults in that do have a sort of distinct feeling of like personality. And like Winston Duke and Lupita Nyong'o have really entertaining like banter and flirtation at the beginning of that movie before everything starts going really wrong. But I was just so impressed by by this quality of the writing and this mm-hmm. on the character level. And I think it surpasses the past two movies. And yeah. I think on a technical level, this also surpasses the past two. And it's really exciting to me to get to watch a director who started his career with this incredible movie keep becoming better and clearly trying to it's a very conscious evolution and i mean also the characterization thing serves the movie right because as i said this sort of movie works best if there's like really strong characterization and performances whereas a film like get out if it's a straightforward horror film you can actually get away with extremely simplistic characterization because it's all about reactions and getting the audience to emotionally engage with those reactions Right. And like, we're talking about archetypes in this, like Get Out obviously is all about archetypes. And so those characters are supposed to be two dimensional, not in a negative way, but like, that's kind of, well, obviously the white people are, they're just characters of evil, but even the Daniel Kaluuya character, like we don't really know that much about him and it doesn't matter because as you say, it's all just about his experience in the moment of that situation. Whereas this, yeah. Because the whole thing is about history, both like people's personal history and just like the whole history going back of Hollywood. I mean, we haven't mentioned Stephen Young yet, who is the other key member of the cast. And Michael Wincott, who actually has more screen time, I think, and is wonderful. Hilarious. But 
why don't we, do you want to like give a little explanation of how this movie begins and yes. then this sort of setup of this other this like movie side plot? has a wild opening. It's a scene from a 1980s or a 90s sitcom co-starring a real live chimp. And this- Gordy. Tr- yeah, Gordy the chimp. And Gordy the Chimp goes on a rampage and basically just murders a bunch of people. And this is the origin story for Stephen Young's character, who was a child actor. And he was like the sole human survivor of this chimp massacre, which became this morbid pop culture story. And as an adult, he is now Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer's neighbour. He runs this very cheesy Wild West theme park thing down the road. And he's got this sort of Wild West gear on and he is buying up Daniel Kaluuya's horses. But he's not really an antagonistic figure. He's quite a a funny character in a dark sort of way. Because when they go to him to have this business meeting that is very upsetting for Daniel Kaluuya's character because like he's losing the family business... Kiki is much more interested in talking about this guy's entertainment industry background because she wants to be a famous star. And he has this whole museum dedicated to his background as a child star sitcom actor. And there's this really dark relationship between the reality and the fiction that he is playing into where he's like totally catering to fandom and like people's nostalgia for his stardom and this TV show and people's weird morbid fascinations with the fact that like something horrible happened on set and he's really perky about it and it's like no this fucked you up for your entire life you watched a bunch of people get torn to shreds by an animal yeah he's not in the movie a ton he is unbelievably unnerving in this film yeah I think I mean he's always great and he's great at this yeah (laughs) yeah obviously fantastic actor but when he he's sort of showing them around his like shrine to Gordy slash this traumatizing event in his life slash his child actor career, and he's clearly still kind of getting off on the fact that people want to talk to him. I mean, he has a very this. practiced anecdote sharing yes. rhythm. Yeah, it's it's just very unsettling, and so the movie begins with this sort of. Is it just one shot of the chimp? Yeah, it's like a really brief thing, I think. You don't really know the context. You know that something horrible has happened with a chimp on what is clearly a TV set. Right. And then sort of midway through the film, after we have met Stephen Young's character and gotten this context, there's a flashback to when this is actually happening. And it's really masterfully directed because the implication of violence is very clear. Like, you understand what's happening, but he doesn't show the violence directly. And we're seeing it primarily from the point of view of Stephen Yeun's character, who is a small boy and is, like, hiding under the, you know, table at, like, craft services or something. And um, the chimp sees him, and he's kind of the last one left, and comes up to him and initially doesn't really do anything and then kind of holds his hands out in a gesture that seems sort of like he's just trying to almost like say hi and not he's like it doesn't look like he's going to attack him and then that's when sort of like the backup arrives and well he's gonna do the exploding fist bump because the chimp and the boy invented the exploding fist bump and then he gets killed which i mean is 
is correct because he was murdering many people. But obviously that like adds to this horrific experience for this kid. And the other like visual oddity of this bit of the movie, which you see in that first shot, it's like the thing that sticks out in that first shot. And then you see it again in this bit in the middle is this shoe that is worn by this woman who's been killed, who's lying on the floor, that is standing like directly vertically, like on the heel, sort of facing up to the sky. And there's obviously something very weird and unsettling about that also, because it's defying gravity. And to me, like seeing that shot at the opening of the movie, and you see the chimp walking around, I was like, well, this is obviously a reference to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I think is pretty clearly the case. And for people who aren't familiar with that movie, you should watch it. One of the best films ever made, best science fiction movie ever made, and that seems relevant to people who listen to this podcast. But it basically, there's this like prequel in like the prehistoric days of the Earth. And there's the sort of like black... What's the word for that thing? I would say it was an obelisk, maybe. But, like, it's not, because an obelisk is, like, a... It's triangular, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, um, there is a word for it, but I don't... I mean, it's a slab. It's a, it's yeah, a, black, a black slab. slab it looks basically. like a cell phone. <laughs> yeah, but there's... It's it's very, very freaky. And these chimps, who are all, of course, just men wearing, like, chimp suits, that's when they kind of, like, learn how to... Or, like, first get the idea to start committing acts of violence against each other. And you don't see chimps at any point again in 2001. Like, it shoots forward in time to 2001, which in 1968 seems like everyone should be in space. But this black slab thing keeps coming back as this sort of, like, icon of the fall of man, basically. And that concept of primordial violence and sort of what people will do to each other and the difference between people and animals and what that difference I mean, is this or film isn't. Is, is divided into labeled chapters and each yeah. chapter is named after a different animal that appears in the movie. Yeah. I think it's just so potent. And part of what I loved about the movie was that I don't think he's, I think he's raising a lot of themes that he doesn't necessarily answer. I mean, I think there are conclusions you can take away from the movie and we'll, actually start talking about all those themes shortly. But I think that that's like an important little detail of like context to understand. And I think that one of the things some people have had a little bit of trouble with with this movie is this whole sort of like chimp thing and the Stephen Young character who again isn't in it that much. But to me, it feels like such a cohesive piece of the sort of story he's telling about violence, trauma, and spectacle. Yeah. Right? Well, it's because, like, a lot of people are now trained by YouTube to analyze stuff in a very one-to-one basis, sort of, oh, there's an explanation for this later in the film sort of thing. And it's like, yeah, there's an explanation for it, but it's thematic rather than plot-based. And it's definitely not, you know, hard to understand. One of the issues with us is that a lot of the allegorical stuff is just, like, really all over the place and doesn't really hold together and is so open to interpretation that it's kind of incoherent. Whereas in this, it feels very solid, even though, as you say, it's not kind of as direct as Get Out. I would like to say just before we move on, just to allow you to laugh at me, is that um, the guy who plays the chimp, Terry Notary, until I looked up the cast for this film, I did not realise that 
the guy from the movie The Square was just a professional chimp actor. Because in the independent film The Square, which is one of Morgan's favourite movies, great film, the most iconic image from this, which is on the poster and stuff, is this performance artist who acts like an ape and freaks out. And um, the actor, Terry Notary, is just this guy who does nothing but play apes and CGI in movies, and he plays the chimp in this. <laughs> I, will, I will tell you, never occurred to me. Would have never once entered my mind watching The Square that that would be that man's job, but now that you point oh, out- Oh, I, I assumed that as the world's biggest fan of The Square, you sense. would know this. No, if you look at his IMDb, it's all fucking Kong Skull Island, Rise of the <laughs> Planet of the Apes, Avengers, The Lion King, The Call of the Wilds. He is Mr. Ape Man. He was cast in The Square because the directors googled man doing impression of monkey and found him. <laughs> I mean, what a thrill to be like, you're going to get to do your thing, but it's going to be all you in a dining room full of fancy dressed people. It is electrifying. And in this, what they did for this movie is they just made a sitcom set scaled up 30% so they could have an adult man pretending to be a chimp in it. And, um, you know, I was watching it like, this seems like a real chimp. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's clearly CGI. You know, intellectually it must be CGI, but I was like, this is definitely a real chimp. It, yeah, it looks really, really good. So there's sort of like a third chunk of the movie where you, there's more plotty stuff that I don't want to discuss Shall we talk about tech? We'll talk about tech stuff now and then we'll talk about the final section of the film and the rest of the themes at the end. Yes, I think that makes sense. So technically this movie is just completely masterful. Stunning. Again, I saw it on IMAX and it was just such a pleasure to look at and listen to and Part of what I really respected and enjoyed about it in terms of the cinematography specifically, which is by Hoyte van Hoytema, who um, is Christopher Nolan's regular cinematographer now, one of the best working guys, I think. It's not like there are a bunch of images where you're just like, wow, I want to frame that and put it on my wall. But every single shot is like doing something very intentional for the movie. And the action is shot in just like, the most skilled yes. way. So in this, once we get to the kind of the latter half and you start to see the flying saucer, it literally is footage of people looking at the sky and seeing a flying saucer. And I was watching this movie like, wow, it's really amazing they managed to get real footage of this flying saucer in the wild. It's incredibly <laughs> realistic. It feels absolutely real. <laughs> uh, well, so... We've obviously mentioned that the these characters are horse ranchers. Daniel Kaluuya is the only person who actually rides a horse in the movie, at least in any sustained way. And so they're, during this sort of action stuff when he is riding a horse, you have a lot of these shots where the camera will be following him either from behind or the side. And the sense of, again, the sort of like epic Western thing, so much of that is coming from the cinematography, but not in a way where it's like, the shots are meant to look exactly like the searchers or whatever, right? Like, it feels like itself, but in a sort of, like, lineage of these other movies. And I also was really just taken with the nighttime stuff, and a lot of the stuff happens at night. And you have some quote here about how they did some of this, but I understand that a bunch of it, if not all of the nighttime stuff, was day for night, which I think is very cool as a choice. And there is something about those night shots that like looks a little bit funny and odd but in a way that I found kind of like mesmerizing like the color is just like so blue and like yeah 
I thought it looked great. Yeah. I mean, this is apparently the first horror movie ever filmed in IMAX, but when I hear a distinction like that, I'm like, well, to be honest, I wouldn't even really describe this as a horror movie. Like, it's far more of a sci-fi blockbuster. But um, yeah, in this interview at motionpictures.org with Hoyte van Hoytema, he says... The best example I can give you is the night shots. On the day of our first location scouts, Jordan and I stepped out of the car at night, turned the lights out and walked into the middle of this valley. There was a tiny red blinking light blinking on a telephone tower in the distance, but otherwise no light. So your pupils start dilating. Suddenly you start seeing details in the hills around you, the stars in the sky. You experience the expanse of nature. We loved that feeling, which also became a very scary feeling in the context of the film, which is definitely completely what it evokes because it is all about this like really wide open landscape but it's also in a way claustrophobic because it all takes place in this one valley and mostly we're seeing it from the perspective of the house which is at one end of the valley and then down at the the bottom there's Stephen Young's little cartoon ranch village thing so they are trapped in this simultaneously extremely open and claustrophobic space with this entity that's gonna get them and you can't go as fast as an alien spaceship even if you have a horse but they need to be out there to try and bait it into being visible because they need to take photos of it so it's an incredibly compelling physical environment and one of the things that I read in another interview with Heute van Heutema and also the editor especially is that um Part of the reason why this film is so effective, as is the case for a lot of action movies, is that they had an extremely specific and detailed idea of where everything is geographically. So the editor that um, Jordan Peele works with was Nicholas Monsur, who I feel like he's worked with before, I'm not sure. But he had this just model and map of the valley and he knew where all of these shots were going to be so that when you had these sequences where you were traveling through the valley on a horse they edited it in a way that instinctively works really well in your mind and also they've got this soundscape that's created like this is definitely gonna be nominated if not win the sound design oscar this year because they've made a big deal of the sound design but um it's extremely three-dimensional and immersive um i think top gun's going to win this <laughs> the sound oscar but well they'll get a little nomination <laughs> yes i mean a nomination is the true reward and sound we must remember that sound is sound is one category now so all the the big vroom vrooms in top gun this is what's going to do it but yeah i mean i will leave the music talk to you in a second but everything you say about the valley feeling like a real place is so true and it has the feeling of like a trapped room horror movie except that it happens to be this big open space. But even though it looks big and open and has, therefore, the visual possibilities of that space to do all these other things, emotionally, the characters are still trapped, right? And I think that he then kind of gets the benefit of the horror and the Western yeah. genre at the same time. I mean, the sound designer for this is a guy named Johnny Byrne, who did Under the Skin, which is obviously an extremely intense film that is about an alien abduction experiences, kind of. And uh, Jordan Peele was like, I'm going to get that guy. And there's an interview that I saw where he described it as a dome of sound, which is very interesting. So like he recruited someone who had the perfect skill set to make this film very creepy. Yeah. And he also apparently brought him in unusually early in the production process. I have no idea when this usually happens, but apparently later on, but he was like, I need Johnny Byrne immediately to develop my ideas for this project. 
I mean, great. I I love and respect that. I also want to particularly point out that a ton of this movie takes place at night, as we keep saying. And we have mentioned on a couple recent episodes, I think, the sort of like chronic long-term issue in film in general, and especially American cinema with the shooting cinematography of black skin, and that that is often not developed and like lit correctly. And so you'll get this situation where like black people, especially dark skinned black people just like aren't lit. Right. And you can't see them correctly. And Hoidema Hoidema is an expert at his craft. And so the skin of the actors, um, especially Daniel Kaluuya, who has quite dark skin, looks really rich in this, including in the nighttime scenes with the exception of one scene where he is hiding in his car where his skin is so dark you can basically only see his eyes. But that is clearly an intentional artistic choice where he's in such a state of sort of like fear and um, he's just like frozen in his seat that they only kind of want you to see his eyes kind of moving around in the dark in the car. And also he has the most expressive eyes in Hollywood. Like, he is known for his eyes. (laughs) We need to talk more about the acting, because I think the acting is incredible. But I thought that shot was the most memorable shot of the movie. I found it mesmerizing. And yeah, the amount of acting Daniel Kaluuya is able to do with his eyeballs alone is pretty amazing. But overall, like, I was really impressed by that and like I wasn't expecting Jordan Peele to put out a movie that had that issue but given that we've been talking about this recently and I've seen some stuff recently where it has been an issue it was just like a real relief and pleasure to watch a film that was so again like lusciously and meticulously crafted on a visual level where you get to see these amazing actors looking great (laughs) and also like their faces look like faces right like I mean obviously these are gorgeous like young people but they're not super They look regular rich in the movie. And so like they have I mean Kiki Palmer obviously is paying attention to her appearance like in the film, but they ha- do have this vibe of being kind of just like normal people yes. in the film. And that's you know, that's I nice. mean the costume design was apparently developed with the actors and like Kiki Palmer has a very out there style in this. She's sort of like a hipster lesbian who's very casual in California, but it's like weird slogan t-shirts and stuff like that. Like she looks great and it's also very normal. Yeah. Before I let you talk about the music for a while, because uh, you you can just monologue about that. I don't I don't have coherent thoughts, except that it was good. Um I think we should just Sidebar about the acting briefly. We already talked a little bit about Brandon Perea, who I thought was really, really good and funny in this. I'd never seen him in anything before. But um, I just think that Kiki Palmer and especially Daniel Kaluuya in this movie are like so mind-bogglingly good that they make a lot of the other swings that Jordan Peele is sort of taking possible. Which isn't to say that the movie wouldn't have succeeded otherwise but like all the stuff we were talking about earlier in terms of like the characterization being really important and like you need to get so emotionally invested all of that rests so much on these performers doing their jobs well i mean he wrote the role for daniel kaluuya and kiki palmer was his first choice and kiki palmer's entire personality is so visible in this character you know Obviously, she is, like, an actor who can play many different kinds of role, but I feel like we're all familiar with her personality, so that charisma is just, like, allowed to shine through in a really powerful way. Yeah, and she gets to do both the sort of, like, really witty, funny, charismatic stuff, but also to play drama and pathos, and she does both of those really, really well. 
I found the sibling relationship in this movie very moving. They clearly really love each other, but don't really get along, which I think is often the case with siblings, right? And there's like sort of evolution of that as the movie goes along. It's not just a static thing. So I thought she was great. I thought she was incredibly funny. But I thought that Daniel Kaluuya, I was just like, how does this man do his job? Like, I just don't understand how he does it. Like, it is so, he is so completely mesmerizing to me. And of course, I mean, I think he's fantastic in Get Out. We obviously talked about him a little bit with the Oscars stuff. I guess it was two years ago for Judas and the Black Messiah now. I don't understand time anymore. And I think he was amazing in that movie. And that was obviously a more sort of like outward facing performance because he's giving these like big speeches, right? And he's really good at all of that. He's very terrifying in Widows playing kind of the bad guy. But I think this is the role I found him the most exciting and interesting in because he can do so much by doing what seems to be nothing. Like, he yeah, I mean, he is playing there. a depressed character who doesn't say much and is really compressed, but, <laughs> but it's just like so compelling. Like, I mean, honestly, he surprisingly like has not done as many roles as you would think but if he'd done more roles i would be like he's the millennial philip seymour hoffman like he really is (laughs) that's an interesting comparison i mean i think philip seymour hoffman even when he was doing a more recessive role there was always something kind of i don't know what the word i'm trying to look for is obviously not warm because he he played some assholes but there was something garrulous about him i think in most of his roles there was a lot he was such a beautiful talker which obviously daniel clearly can do that like he does that in juice and the black messiah but to me i feel like the almost the biggest skill of his is when he's not talking and like get outs like that too right because as we were talking about like so much of that is about him reacting to other things and this movie is the same it's just like in a different context so he's doing it more with like his whole body and doing action sequences and yeah i just like so there was during so much of the film i was just like he's just so good at his job like, like <laughs> thinking to myself which is such a like yes indeed he is he's won an academy award but it was really sort of mind-blowing to me to watch him in this and um you know we'll start talking about the end in a minute but He's really where the em- emotional stuff happens at the end for me. And um, I found it very, very moving. And so much of that is coming just from what he's doing with his body and especially his eyes. And um, it totally makes sense that the role is written for him. And it's a testament to like the trust that Jordan Peele obviously has in him as a performer. That he believes correctly that he can do all of this without needing the speeches or the dialogue. I would also like to add, which is something that we always forget, is that he's doing it all with an accent. I know! Insane! Some people can't even do the accent. Benedict Cumberbatch can't do an accent. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, it's really... And I'm always sympathetic to the people who can't yeah, do it. Yeah, I mean, it's a I different think... skill, but like, Daniel can do an accent. <laughs> I know, it's really amazing. The one other thing I want to say about him and Peele is like, I was reading some interview where Jordan Peele was just like, he's just my favorite actor. I just think he's so amazing. And I think it's really beautiful and special when you have, and like, speaking of Philip Seymour Hoffman, Paul Thomas Anderson used to talk mm-hmm. about him like that. 
And like when you get a director who just loves an actor that much and just wants to see them act and like wants to create parts for them in this just like very personal way that's obviously about the relationship that they have as people but also is about just like I just think he's the best actor alive like and obviously I think Daniel Julio probably is one of the best actors alive but like I think it's impossible to make that determination but that Jordan Peele just has this like reverence for him you know um so why don't you talk about the music a little bit before we get into the last chunk of the movie so the composer for this film is Michael Abels, who also composed the music for Get Out and Us. Get Out was his first film, but obviously he was a composer before that. Like he's a middle-aged guy. He is your classic child prodigy who I think had his first symphony when he was like 12 or 13, very young. <laughs> but yeah, I could not even remember the music from Get Out. I listened to a bit of it today to remind me. Um, And obviously it's great. It's much more kind of horror it's like a very straightforward horror style soundtrack and got loads of critical acclaim because it kind of combines these hip-hop influences with the shrieking psycho violin stuff but in this movie it's this combination of really big sort of classic spielbergian action adventure riffs with like a much bigger orchestra than you get on the previous two movies with Michael Abels and also there's these American classical influences which the part that really sprung out to me when I was watching the movie is toward the end, there's this really epic sequence that has Daniel Kaluuya galloping on a horse away from the UFO. And there's this part of the music, which is just like, it's incredible. Like it's so good where it's an orchestral piece that sounds really similar to Aaron Copland, who's one of the most famous American classical composers. He's a 20th century guy and he composed music that, became the foundation for a lot of music that we get in westerns like because he was in the 20th century he also composed music for films himself as did a lot of 20th century composers but because he was drawing from american folk music like specifically white american folk music that's like the sound of the west and he expanded that into orchestral motifs And in this, you've got this thing, which is just like everyone who's watching it, even though you won't necessarily be familiar with Aaron Copeland, you'll be like, oh, this sounds like a Western, but it sounds like a classical Western. And it's an especially interesting choice because Copeland is also one of the whitest of the classic American composers, right? Around the same time, there were other composers who were far more jazz influenced and were far more immersed in and sort of receptive to black music. So like Gershwin is a direct contemporary of Copeland. And at the time, he was kind of less respected in the classical community. And also uh, the European composer Dvorak came to America and composed some of the greatest quote-unquote American classical music and was extremely interested in black music and was taught black composers himself in America in a time when like there was much less cultural crossover in the sort of different musical spheres and I just found that interesting here as a sort of maybe intentional kind of commentary on like borrowing those Copeland themes in this movie that is like talking so much about the idea of re-examining the role of black people in westerns and in the west. I'm sure that you're correct about that. I feel like nothing in this movie was done unintentionally. I mean, of course there's unintentional stuff in art, but I feel like that kind of stuff is, they knew what they were doing. And it sounds great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's an interview with Michael Abels where he's talking about like the bad miracle, which is kind of something they mentioned in the film, like what's a bad miracle? And he said, 
the important theme of the film is like a cross between oh shit and oh my god which is kind of the sense of looking at the Grand Canyon and feeling this sense of terror and awe and it's like yeah you really did it you all did a great job (laughs) well let's use that to like as a jumping off point to get into the sort of big themes of the movie and also the plot twists and the you know plot resolutions at the end of the movie um I mean, we haven't mentioned that the first shot of the film is the Edward Muybridge galloping horseman. Yes, which really should have. Yeah, but, but that's where everything fine. comes from in this film. Yes, so, I mean, this is in the trailer. People will have seen yeah. this, I'm sure. The Her sort of pitch, Kiki Palmer's pitch, I'm terrible at remembering character names, is that, like, the first person recorded on film is this guy who's riding the Ed, famous, very famous Edward Muybridge horse. He, like took a series of photos of this horse galloping. And if you put them together, it just like creates a film. And this was a black man. And she like claims that it's their like great, 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 great grandfather, which in a way where you're like, is this really true? Like, I'm just <laughs> like, it could be true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, that's where this business comes from. But more important than the sort of like textual connection in that way is the bigger themes of the sort of like, legacy of blackness in Hollywood, which is more um, under the surface of the movie, I think, as opposed to something like Get Out, where obviously like race and racism are the central issue of that movie. But also the quest to record things. Yeah. And I mean, to this make quest art. element is where remembering her name would have been helpful because her name is Emerald, which I'm pretty sure is a reference to the Emerald City that everyone is trying to get to in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it makes sense. But I absolutely would didn't make, put that together in my head, so it, it wouldn't have helped me to remember it, actually. <laughs> yeah, and like, the clearest sort of like, direct thematic thing that he's saying in a pretty straightforward way, I think, is that all of these people are like, desperately trying to get this footage to make money and become famous, despite the fact that they are putting themselves at extraordinary personal physical risk Yeah, to do so. And I mean, the contrast between the two groups who are initially trying to do this is that Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer recognize very early on that this is an extremely dangerous endeavor and they're still going to do it. Whereas Stephen Yun, we discover like halfway through the film is just delusional because what he's done is he's like trying to incorporate it into his Wild West show at this like rinky dink little theme park he's got. So he sets up this thing where he's going to use one of the horses as bait and he's going to bait this UFO into coming over so the audience can all see it. And it's like every part of this is really stupid because it's like, you've not thought about how dangerous this is. You're not monetizing it in an intelligent way like the main people are because the main characters are like, we need to keep this secret. We need to get the footage. We need to get that footage sold and we need to like wrap this up as quickly as possible. Whereas Stephen Yun is like, yeah, it's going to be this fun spectacle. It's going to be great. And then of course the UFO comes along and like kills everyone. Has he not already been doing this for like a, a month or six months? I think he says that they've been doing something like this. I think basically- he's been... He says, we've been visited, but the impression I got is that this is the first time he's doing it with an audience because his wife is coaching him through the speech. Okay. Because my one quibble was like, horses are extremely expensive. And <laughs> no, I think be he says like, we've been, we've been visited by 
the, this entity which we think of as the viewers, which is like an interesting sort of little thing they've got there in terms of like the viewers at home. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so so it turns out, which we have, have avoided saying, though I'm sure that everyone listening to this has already seen this movie because it's doing very well and is like one of the big things of the summer. That the UFO is not actually a spaceship, but an organism. It's not like teleporting the the animals. Yeah, it's up. sucking them it's up like a big them. vacuum cleaner. It's fully eating them. And one of the really terrifying elements of this spaceship UFO is that like it picks people up, like it picks horses up and it picks people up, and then it spits out the stuff it can't digest. So the stuff that killed the main character's father at the beginning was just like them spitting out the coins and stuff from people it eaten, but also it records the screams of the stuff it's eating or it like amplifies them somehow. So when it's like going through the air, you'll hear the horses screaming. And then later on, you'll hear this chorus of all the people who are screaming, who are being digested. Is it the creature doing that or is it the movie doing that? Well, it could be the movie. I think it's the movie doing that. I was assuming that this was like the thing that the creature was doing. I think that's just people screaming while they're being mushed to death in a large esophagus overhead. <laughs> okay. I don't think that's like <laughs> Well, I thought that I... I thought the spaceship was like amplifying it somehow. <laughs> I mean its mouth looks like a camera shutter, so what do I know? <laughs> well, yeah, so the the thing that I was so enchanted by is that near the end of the movie, it sort of opens up its mouth and we get to see it. We see the people getting sucked up into the esophagus maybe halfway through. But what we don't get to see is what it looks like when you get sucked up into it until later on, if I remember correctly. And there's this sort of like, it, it literally is a camera shutter. Like there's a thing that sort of is closing and opening in like the 35 millimeter frame shape. And um, I don't really use cameras anymore. But when I was a teenager, I was very into my 35 millimeter SLR camera. And that's what the inside looks like. And um, the sort of literalization of, like, the danger being the sort of art creation, I was just, like, so enchanted by. And I think there are kind of two simultaneous things going on thematically, one of which is this sort of, like, we are in such a diseased cultural place that, like, we will do anything, we meaning like Americans broadly, but also people across the world, to become famous on the internet slash make money, including commodifying death, misery, whatever, and endangering ourselves. But there's also the idea of like, what are you willing to do to make art? In a way that I don't think he's necessarily like, I don't think the movie like comes to a conclusion, because there's something really beautiful about the creature. I mean, and also the way it's structured is that you're really rooting for them to succeed. You're yes. desperate for them to get an image of this thing because like, it yeah. will save them. I mean, we haven't mentioned Antler's Holst, the best oh. named character in the movie, oh. played by Michael Wincott, who's a character actor who's known for having an extremely deep voice. His vi- voice is absolutely absurd in this. He plays this sort of caricature cinematographer who is this, you know, huge Hollywood star. And they meet him at the beginning of the movie and they call him up a couple of times to try and get him to come and film the UFO for them. And he's amazing. Like, he's clearly this, like, really rich guy who just, like, sits at home and fiddles with his expensive cameras all day. And when he eventually realises this is, like, the shot of a lifetime, 
he comes over and he's like he's got his like homemade wind-up camera that's not going to be interfered with by the like anti-electronic stuff of this you know space shark and he's wearing these like draped silk fabrics and i was like this costume is the best costume it is perfect (laughs) this obnoxious guy who's so kind of like his voice oh loved it loved it great over the top role but i mean the final setup is basically the main characters creating this plausibly DIYable but quite elaborate trap to get the UFO to be visible to this cinematographer's cameras in the canyon by setting up all these sort of, you know, those like inflatable tube guys that you get at gas stations and they will act as bait. So like that's why Daniel Kaluuya is galloping around because they're like, they're checking up on these inflatable things and like trying to film it. It's a very smart setup. Well, they're bait and also because this thing kills electricity, which yeah. we conveniently have not mentioned until, yeah. I don't know, an hour into this podcast, <laughs> because those are obviously run on electricity. Yeah. If they sort of go down, they can tell where the thing it is. It acts overhead. as an alarm system. Yeah. And so there's this, again, incredible sequence at the end where he is basically like charging as bait to sort of draw yeah. this thing on. And the other trick is that if it can see your eyes, like if this surveillance entity can see that you're watching it, that's how it knows that you're there. So like a lot of the tension here is him trying to escape it without looking at it so it can't see his eyes or trying to bait it by making his eyes visible. Yes. So there's sort of like, again, the thematic dimensions here in terms of like, you're mentioning surveillance, obviously, but also the sense of like, horses also freak out if if stuff sort of enters their line of sight in an unexpected way, which we see happen at the beginning of the movie. And the like parallels or not between the horses and this thing in the sky are sort of there throughout the film. And then of course the chimp is also like the third part of this animal triangle. And the sort of just like, well, do you want to look or not? Like if you choose not to acknowledge it, does something exist? And this sort of, like, Orpheus Eurydice thing, right? But in a, like, totally twisted way of just, like, you just have to have the self-control, which Daniel Kulia OJ, is really the only one who's, like, fully yeah, The cinematographer is, like, so desperate of getting a, for getting the perfect shot that he, of course, gets massively digested. In a way that feels, like, very much that he's just ready to be eaten. Like, that feels Yeah, he's like, suicidal. I completed like, my life. Yeah, but... By this point in the movie, again, there's just, like, all of these threads coming together in terms of the stuff we've been talking about. When I was watching it, I wasn't necessarily as sort of, like, immediately clued into the, like, oh, this is kind of an allegory or parable about the, like, diseased nature of American society right now, which I do think is part of what the movie's about and what they were kind of pushing on the PR trail for this movie. Like, a lot of the interviews were about them talking about, like, it's about spectacle and, like, the sort of commodification of spectacle and, like, the dangers of that. And I think that's completely, absolutely, it's clearly what the movie's about. Like, all the stuff with the chimp is directly speaking to that idea. But again, I feel like there's just something else about, like, what it means to be an artist in this movie that is way harder to come to a conclusion about. Well, do you want to explain the TMZ man, which is sort of important context for what winds up yeah, happening? Yeah, I end? mean, toward the end, 
a TMZ biker guy shows up in this like reflective helmet to try and like find out what's happening. And because he has no sense of self-preservation and doesn't listen to their warnings, he ends up getting got by the UFO. But he also acts as bait in that context, so they do manage to get a shot. Yeah, which again, like, of course, TMZ, classic example of just like, shitty, moral-free journalism, in quotes. But they wind up sort of... Because the cinematographer is like, I have to get my perfect shot after they've sort of completed their mission, like he fucks it up again. And then the thing comes back and um, the siblings wind up kind of in this position where like one of them has to sacrifice themselves so that the other one can escape. And Daniel Kaluuya is, makes the decision to sacrifice himself, which is also a very classic kind of Western classic Hollywood like situation. And so she drives off on the motorbike and goes back to the carnival place where Stephen Yun had previously worked before. Literally everyone there got eaten by this alien. And down to like the last second, she's still desperately trying to get photos of this thing, which obviously like if you look at it from a straightforward psychological point of view, it's just that like everyone she knows has basically been killed by this. So she obviously wants some proof that it existed. But there's also a sort of like, I have to sort of complete my art thing. And then when you see the thing in its like full form, it's like huge and beautiful and mesmerizing in a way that's really unexpected and kind of like, well, yeah, it was eating everyone, but like, <laughs> it does it look cool. <laughs> it looks pretty great. And I don't know. I just feel like, like when I'm working on a novel, I mean, I'm not literally just like, I'm going to sacrifice my life to finish this book. But there is a kind of myopia that sets in when you're doing something like that. And I think this movie is really good at like literalizing that through these sort of plot things. And I think that there's this kind of like magic to it as well, but there it's a tragic in a tragic way. Right. Because there winds, you wind up losing things from that obsession as well. And then the last shot of the movie kind of hammers all these things home in a different way. What did you think of that last shot? You mean where you see that OJ is still alive? Well, I wasn't, I kind of felt like it was a little bit ambiguous. I was like, I felt a bit weird for that. Cause like, obviously I wanted him to be alive, but that felt so implausible to me that he would be alive and yeah. his horse would be fine. That I was like, is yes. that actually real? You know? Right, so we see him and his horse through, like, this mist, dust, whatever, and it's basically the exact same shot that we see from the Moybridge at the beginning. Yeah. And, I mean, my interpretation of that is he's dead and she's seeing something, but I also think it doesn't matter, yeah. right? Because this is where I think the art stuff becomes more complicated and interesting, is that, like, yes, they've sacrificed all this stuff for it, he's probably dead, other people are dead, but... There's all this stuff in the movie about sort of history and legacy and that, like, he now is this, like, iconic figure. And not that, like, that's necessarily worth dying for in a literal sense, but the sort of, like, feeling of awe that I got from that image, I think is kind of the whole point of the movie in a way, right? And so, like... If you work hard enough and you sacrifice enough, you can create something that 
is meaningful, historical, which is where the race stuff comes into the movie, I think, even though it's not, like, the main focus. And what are you willing to do for that? And that's what I don't think the movie really has an answer to. Yeah. I mean, I should have mentioned this earlier, but to me, that reminds me a bit of the history of, like, how the concept of UFOs spread in the US, because it has this you know, there's this symbiotic relationship between urban legend and pop culture because UFOs kind of started showing up in the mid-20th century after World War II, where some stuff is probably real phenomena and other stuff is people imagining stuff and making stuff up. But the concept of alien abduction as we know it comes from two really specific people, which was a interracial couple named Barney and Betty Hill in the 1950s. And the reason why their story caught on is because they weren't attention seekers. They told a really small number of people and then their story was outed to the press and they were perceived as really believable because like, obviously they wouldn't want to draw attention to themselves as an interracial couple. Barney was working in the civil rights movement at this point and ended up losing his career as a result of being famous as the UFO guy. And they told this story that was like very traumatic about being kidnapped and having medical experiments put on them and stuff. And over the decades... Betty became a celebrity in the UFO community and was kind of chewed up by her own legacy. Because like for decades, they kept the same story. And then the more famous she became, she started like talking more about being abducted other times. And it sort of evolved from being this really plausible, realistic story into something that really seemed like someone had either been taken in by fame or had mental health issues. But at the same time, like they have basically created the blueprint for every UFO abduction story since then. That's really fascinating. I was not familiar with that and i'm sure that that's something that was oh yes <laughs> in his brain in a big way yeah so again the like what is it worth which obviously in this case like we don't know what was motivating these people and what they thought the experience i mean but, i um, think something probably happened to them that was really traumatic and they blocked out oh, whatever yeah. happened like, you know? that's yes that's i i don't mean like yeah. in a calculated way just like you know but um I think also in terms of this movie and like the end of this movie and the way that he's playing with all these other cinematic references that like, well, I found that last shot really moving just in terms of like the relationship between those two characters was so effective to me that I just was Mm -hmm. moved by the, the sight of him. I was also moved by the sight of him in this bigger historical context that the movie has introduced us to or reminded us of. But I also was like... The whole beginning of the movie is like, well, here's like a film frame that's an image. And we see an image at the end and all of it's made up, right? Like, of course, none of this really happened. So not in the sense that like it was all a dream, but I think he's he's being intentionally provocative in the sense that like, we don't know if he's alive or dead or not at the end, but it kind of doesn't matter because what matters is the text of the movie in the sense that the film is an art object, right? Like, we come back to this often when we're analyzing things in the sense that, like, the characters don't really exist. (laughs) Like, it's fine. We're supposed to be thinking about these things as pieces of media. And so that image, like, those two images are connected, and that's kind of, I think, the point of, like, making this movie is getting those two things together, right? Which is very meta, right? That, like, all of this stuff that Jordan Peele is doing, all of this to make this movie to get that to happen. And what I'm sure was very onerous, though not like dangerous as well. Yeah. I just think that 
it's so dense and rich with ideas. Like we, I'm sure we could come up with more that's happening that we haven't touched on. I yeah, I just like respect him so much as like a creative thinker and like philosopher of you know. Check out art. the Twilight Zone, listeners. <laughs> Yeah, it's on Paramount Plus, right? Yeah, I mean, if you get that, you can watch Star Trek and uh, The Good Fight. So, pretty good and deal. And Evil. Yeah, we have a bonus episode up on Patreon right now where you can listen to us answer some listener questions, including an amazing listener question that we got where we were asked to pitch TV shows to each other, um, which took up like half the episode and uh, we had a lot of fun. So you can do that or you can sponsor an episode at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We also really appreciate five-star ratings or reviews on um, Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast service you use. It really helps with visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. You can find me on Letterboxd at hello Taylor. And you can find me just generally at the Daily Dot, where I hopefully will be reviewing the new Lord of the Rings TV show as soon as possible. Yes, I have an interview with one of the cast members of the Lord of the Rings at Bustle. I have no idea when it will be on the website. So maybe by the time this is up, maybe not. We will have an episode on the Lord of the Rings forthcoming. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>